Meanwhile, some people have developed an unfortunate prejudice against Ba Jia Jiang. In some troops, many of the performers were young dropouts who'd quit school and so had plenty of time on their hands. Troop activities were filled with liquor, smoking, and betel nut chewing. Combined with the forceful, even violent movements of the gods, and some people came to associate Ba Jia Jiang with less than savory characters. But Mr. Wu says the Zhen Yutang troop has escaped this prejudiced view. It hasn't relaxed its standards, and all of its members are only there to serve the gods. Mr. Wu says that with colorful costumes and makeup, careful training, and expert choreography, his troop can still draw a crowd in Jiayi, even a hundred years after its founding. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Hello, you're listening to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and today with me in the studio, I have Crystal Liu, who is an artist activist, and she's also an event facilitator, basically. She's a freelancer, and... Um, well, the rest I'll have her tell you. Well, hi, Crystal. Hi. You said you were born in... I am born in Taipei. Okay, yeah. you're born in Taipei, but then you spent some time in the States, right? Yeah, I am born in Taiwan, but I moved to Shanghai yeah. when I was around six okay. or seven years old. And then I graduated from high school there. So I basically spent like over 10 years there right. and then I went to university in in LA in the states right yeah you went to an international school in Shanghai yeah yeah that's why your English is so good <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then of course eventually went to college in the states so that helps but um wh- why did you um go to Shanghai with your family you guys kind of emigrated there right not really oh. um because uh, at the time, my dad is doing business there. My parents felt like, as family, we need to stick together. Sure. And that's why we made the decision to move to Shanghai. Right. Yeah. And then you stayed for 11 years, you said, right? A total yeah, until I graduate. Years. Do you still remember what life was like in Shanghai? I think when I was young, when I first moved there, it was more like, yay, I'm going to another place and enjoy the new experiences. But now looking back, I feel like, I really watched like how China has developed. Like when I first moved there, people think me and my brother are twins. Oh. Yeah, because I of mean... the one child policy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like only like one or two types of cars on the streets. <laughs> That's like very like taxi and you know, like the bus. There's like a lot of new and interesting, exciting events and international things happenings in Shanghai right now. That you know, I can never imagine in the past. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's how fast China has changed. My Definitely, goodness. Definitely, yeah. From what year to what year were you in Shanghai then? Um, from the year 2000 to 2012. You can imagine just how fast China is changing and developing. Well, that is amazing. Because you said that back then was only one or two different kinds of cars. <laughs> That's how I remembered. Yeah. yeah. Did you enjoy that time when you were staying there? There's some <laughs> moments where I felt like I'm stuck there <laughs> because I'm kind of forced to move there. 
mm-hmm. and forced to go to school there and stay there. I was always in my you know little bubble with other Taiwanese or expats. At the time, there's a lot of things I don't appreciate, like people don't wait in line, and you know, there's a lot of population and everything. Well, isn't it still like that? But now <laughs> no. I think it's getting a lot better. Actually,、and、you're right. I, I think it's getting better. I just went back to Shanghai for、uh, the West Bend Art Fair. I、oh, went、okay. to assess one of the galleries. I think now I appreciate and interact with more locals, and I appreciate the culture more. But back then, while I was living there, I wasn't that involved. Do you remember? Because you went to Shanghai when you were six years old. Do you remember the days before six years old when you were still in Taiwan? <laughs> I do remember、um, attending first grade in Jinghua Primary School, and the education system here—it's very different. I actually went to local school for two years in Shanghai and international school for most of the years. So I kind of experienced the different education system.、Yeah. So what what kind of things kind of stuck out the most about those school days? And in comparison, in the international school is definitely more open. All the textbooks are from the states because most people would go to college there,、mm-hmm. and the local school is really really strict. It's very competitive. Getting good grades are everything. At the time, I felt like my personality changed as well. Yeah, like you have to behave, you have to like sit really still, you have to, you know, raise your hand and you know be very obedient. The politics is different. I wouldn't be able to speak my thoughts freely. So then, when you switched、oh. from a local school there to the international school, I'm sure you went through like culture shock. Did you? Yes, a little bit.、Um, it took me some time to adapt. And to be more confident and to express myself,、mm. you learned a simplified form of Chinese writing, right? While、I、you、did. were there, yeah. So now, wow, you can write both simplified and traditional form of Chinese, right? I can't write traditional Chinese well, but I can read both simplified and traditional Chinese. Now people mostly type, so I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, that's the benefit of going through all the different kinds of schools and different systems. If you really think back and try to be positive about it, actually, it's it's great to have all the different experiences and exposure, so that if you were to live in a totally different country sometime in the future, you won't go through so much culture shock. But、right? surprisingly, coming back to Taiwan. Took me a while to adapt. <laughs> yes, you said that there was a reason why you came back to Taiwan. Okay, well, are you saying that you went to college in the states, and your parents had wanted you to stay in the states and look for a job there? Yeah, I think my parents felt like you know, since you already went to school in the states and you have an OPT, why not stay in the states? I was an international student, so、uh-huh. you can apply and stay there for a year after you graduate. A company sponsors you, right? Right. Yeah, and then so I worked at a art authentication company for a little bit, but then I felt like I wanted to come back to Asia. Right.、Yeah. Uh, first of all, you studied art. Yeah, at, University, University of Southern California. To your dad's disappointment, <laughs> he he would have wanted you to study what? I think anything else, <laughs> anything else but art, and anything that can make money. I think, yeah, like business、uh-huh. or like engineering. But I know, I know, I'm not capable. I'm not interested in that. I was very bad at math. While in high school, the only thing that I I'm certain of is that I love drawing. And I love、oh. art. I was determined that I can make a living somehow <laughs> and support my artwork. Yeah. Now, what kind of drawing are you talking about? Um, in high school, I took IB Visual Arts, so I. 
did all sorts of paintings, drawings, mixed media, just experimenting and exploring. Like I drew like my dog, <laughs> like animals, and、mm -hmm. but it was until. College when I was more consistent and certain of the theme I want to explore, which is related to like my identity as a woman and a Taiwanese that never really grew up in Taiwan, and that's how I got into activism as well through art. When I was young, I only did like drawing and paintings, but in college I did like photography, performance art, sculpture. Installation. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. You were saying part of the reason why you decided to come back and do like women's rights activists and that kind of stuff had to do with your art. Yes.、Um, at the time in LA, I was hanging out with a lot of feminist artists. You chose to. It just happened to, naturally. It just happened naturally. Okay. It just okay. happened naturally. Okay. Because you're an artist, you make art, and you meet people, and you meet a lot of female artists. And I just kind of discovered this gender inequality in the art world, and I began to think about how people view me. Obviously, I'm an Asian. I'm a female. I'm a young artist. And how will I be able to show my art?、Mm. How will I be able to promote myself? How do people view me? I think about all of that. Okay, so then how did that develop into other things, and then eventually you decide you want to come back to Taiwan? I think I I see myself as a conceptual artist. It means, means that the、yeah. art is more focused on the concept, like、okay. the meaning of it, and like my goal. And your goal is like for example,、um, I did a performance piece where I dressed as a homeless person in front of MoMA, a museum of art. As a protest against like gender inequality,、oh, <laughs> yeah, things、okay. things like that. But then it was kind of like a performance art. But coming back to Taiwan,、um, my medium shifted to like organizing events. So like workshops, like the Women's March, or discussions, or exhibitions. Okay, wait a、yeah. minute. But you haven't told us why you decided to come back to Taiwan because you could have done the same thing while there. I came back in 2017 January、yeah. last year,、um, and then I met Jane Wang, amazing woman that、uh, you interviewed before. Yes, I have、um, at an event, and then she wanted to do something on Women's Day, and but but that's when you've already decided you're going to come back. Oh, I still, was just back, and you know, still, still undecisive, still undecisive. Oh, oh, oh got it. Got I actually it. went back to Shanghai as well for a、uh -huh. little bit. Trying to see if maybe something、yeah. would click and then inspire you to、exactly. decide what you should do.、Okay. So when I came back to Taiwan, I I just went to a lot of events and started to meet people, and I felt really inspired. I met a lot of like founders of social enterprises, artists that are wanting to make Taiwan better, and I want to join them.、Okay. And then I met Jane,、right. and we all care about. Women's rights and us and a few other friends organized the Women's March on Women's Day last year, and that's how everything happened. It, it happened really fast and、uh, naturally. What I feel like maybe something you saw, or、mm. experienced, or felt, or something happened while you were in the states that made you have the stronger feeling. Yeah. About you know supporting women's rights. Besides the fact that you will hang out with a lot of you know、um, women artists who are also feminists, 
Was it mostly art that has really made you really think in that direction, and then have this, you know, this passion for promoting human rights and women's rights and all that? I think it's a gradual process. Okay. I am Taiwanese. My parents are Taiwanese. Even though I think my parents are pretty like open, but they have like the traditional Taiwanese parents still, side as well. Okay, they're you still know? conservative in comparison. Yeah, like if I if I'm like if I'm still out at like very late,、uh-huh. then they will be like, "Oh, you should come back because it's really late." But I'll be like, "But my brother is out too," and they'll be like, "Because you're a girl, you need to come back." Stuff like that,、mm-hmm. and I think while in the states, I took a general education class called、uh, feminism theory.、Um, I took the class because I hear it's easy to pass, and there are no <laughs> exams. <laughs>、um, and then it really influenced me because it changed what I think about feminist. I remember the first class, I learned what feminism is. It's about equality. I was like, well, does that mean that everyone that believes in equality are feminists? So the answer is yes or no. Um, that's how I identify myself、oh, as、okay. a feminist because I believe in gender equality. I believe in equality for all. Got that's it. That's my 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 definition. I think everyone might interpret it differently. And before taking that class, I would think that a feminist is a very extreme woman. That doesn't shave her hair, and you know, <laughs> shave her legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't shave her legs and you know armpit, and you know always go on the street and you know pick up fights and stuff. <laughs> you know, I have that stereotype.、Uh-huh. Yeah, but then you know I started to learn more about the situation of women、um, and gender equality, and I also learned that gender equality is is about having equal rights. Okay, it's for The rights of women and men as well. So anyway, you came back and you met, you know, someone awesome, and decided that you guys were gonna just the two of you to organize this women's march. It's actually not just the two of us. Well, There's、okay. six of us. Yeah.、Oh, all right. Can you give a background about women's march? Because of course, obviously, it started. It originally started in the states, and back in what year was it? And now Tokyo has it and all that. So you want to give a little background about Women's March for our listeners who might not know Women's、and、March? Like me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs>、um, I think a lot of people learn about the Women's March、uh, through the news.、Uh, one of the more obvious, obvious. items that they wear are the pussy hats, like the pink pussy hats. Oh, okay. And some of the people think it's an anti-Trump movement, but I don't think it's only about that. I think. It's about racism. It's about discrimination against women, and the mission of Women's March is that women's rights are human rights,、mm. and human rights are women's rights as well. And it's about learning empathy, and regardless a person's gender, sexual orientation, personality, age, everyone deserves to be treated equally. It's a grassroots movement that started in Washington D.C. But other cities joined, including cities in Asia as well.、Mm. So it's a worldwide movement. Tune in next week to find out how the very first women's march turned out in Taiwan from Crystal Liu. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. It's December, and perhaps some of you are already enjoying the first snow. Well, today let me share a few poems from one of the most well-loved and highly read poets of the Tang Dynasty, Bai Juyi. He writes about very relatable topics such as sentiments about the weather, and also baldness and laziness. Perhaps that's why he was so well loved. He wrote on a level that people could relate to. As winter begins, let us start with a poem by Bai Juyi about the season. This one is called Night Snow. Already surprised, quilt, pillow, cold. Again, sea, window bright. Night deep, no snow, heavy. Occasionally, hear snap, bamboo sound. I was surprised, my quilt. And pillow were cold. I see that now the windows bright again. Bai Juyi was an official and a poet, and he was successful at both. Some of his poems were great social commentary of the times. He shared what he saw when he was a government official, as well as a governor of three different provinces. His bold writing did get him in trouble at times, and even exiled. Bai Juyi had a poetic style that was simple and easy to understand. He was one of the most well-loved and widely read of all Chinese poets, both in China and abroad. In addition to writing some social commentary, he also wrote about a lot of things people could relate to, like the seasons and also feelings about life. This one's called Resignation. Don't think of the past; it only awakens painful regrets. Don't think of the future; it paralyzes with uncertain longings. Better by day to sit like a sack in your chair. Better by night to lie like a stone in your bed. When food comes, open your mouth. When sleep comes. Shut your eyes. And there's one that perhaps some men can relate to. He writes about his baldness. At dawn, I sighed to see my hairs fall. At dusk, I sighed to see my hairs fall. For I dreaded the time when the last lock should go. They are all gone, and I do not mind at all. I've done with that cumbrous washing and getting dry. My tiresome comb forever is laid aside. Best of all, when the weather is hot and wet, 
They'll have no topknot weighing down on one's head. I put aside my dusty conical cap and loosen my collar fringe. In a silver jar, I've stored a cold stream. On my bald pate, I trickle a little full. Like one baptized with the water of Buddha's law, I sit and receive this cool, cleansing joy. Now I know why the priest who seeks repose frees his heart by first shaving his head. And here's for those of us who don't feel like getting out of bed in the wintertime. It's called Lazy Man's Song. I have got patronage, but I'm too lazy to use it. I have got land, but I'm too lazy to farm it. My house leaks, I am too lazy to mend it. My clothes are torn, I am too lazy to darn them. I have got wine, but I am too lazy to drink. So it's just the same as if my cellar were empty. I have a harp, but I am too lazy to play. So it's just the same as if it had no strings. My wife tells me there is no more bread in the house. I want to bake, but I am too lazy to grind. My friends and relatives write me long letters. I should like to read them, but they're such a bother to open. I've always been told that Chi Su Ye passed his whole life in absolute idleness, but he played the harp and sometimes transmuted metals. So even he was not as lazy as I. Those are some poems for you by Bai Ju Yi. Hope you enjoyed them. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste and the destination southwestern Taiwan. May 26, 1636 was an important day in the village of Singhan. Records show it was on this day that a school opened in this indigenous village, the first of many set up through Taiwan's southwest by Dutch missionaries. When it came to their main goal, spreading Protestant Christianity, these schools didn't ultimately work out as intended. But the schools brought something else, something the students adopted and made their own. This was writing, and long after the Dutch were expelled from Taiwan, indigenous people kept right on passing down literacy to their children. So what was it they wrote down? A range of documents in indigenous languages has come down to us, and when they're lumped together, it's become a convention to call them the Sinkan Manuscripts. 
My guest today, Li Ruiyuan, is a postdoctoral researcher who's worked with these documents. He's here to tell us what you can find in them and what this writing can tell us about Taiwan's past. Mr. Li begins by saying that for most of history, Taiwan's indigenous peoples got on just fine, passing on their knowledge and stories orally. Some peoples use symbols to transmit information too, like the Bunun of the Central Mountains, who make calendars with images. But as we've said, in the 17th century, Dutch colonizers brought the Roman alphabet to Taiwan. Mr. Lee says, at first, Dutch missionaries lived for periods in indigenous villages, learning local languages, and coming up with ways of representing their sounds with the Latin alphabet. Once they'd got to a certain point, they then took to translating biblical and other religious texts into these languages. The colony's governors were, of course, commercially minded, interested in labor and resources. But Mr. Lee says the key motive for spreading literacy was still religious. The areas where writing caught on and stuck were generally those where Dutch influence was strongest, largely Taiwan's southwest, from Tainan south to Kaohsiung and Pingdong. The languages that show up in the Singhan manuscripts are largely those that come from these areas, Siraya, Taiwan, and Makadao. Speakers of these languages turned writing to far more worldly uses. A large number of the manuscripts are titles and contracts dealing with land. From the Dutch period on, large numbers of ethnic Chinese migrated to Taiwan. The indigenous peoples they came to live beside might not be able to read Chinese, especially the classical formal language often used in documents. What they could do was write down the terms they'd agreed to in their own languages, offering themselves some measure of protection. Some documents are a bit like rental contracts, allowing temporary use of land, while others are outright sales. There is more than just contracts, though. Other documents are lists of prices for different items and accounting books. All in all, the Sinkan manuscripts show indigenous people buying and selling and drawing up terms, often with ethnic Chinese neighbors. One thing that's interesting about these documents is their range of dates. The first one shows up in 1683, the year that imperial Chinese rule began in the southwest. By this starting date, the Dutch had already left Taiwan around 20 years before. And the manuscripts kept coming. The last known document is dated to 1818, 135 years after the first one. Writing had really stuck around. What can these documents tell researchers about the past? One thing is indigenous ways of thinking and ways of making writing their own. Mr. Lee says one thing scholars have noticed is the way that speakers of the Siraya language wrote their numbers. He gives the example of the number 361. Today, most people would write it as the numbers 3, 6, and 1. But speakers of Siraya had a different way. They didn't use places. They would write out 300 as 300, then 60 as 60, and then write the 1. 
Mr. Lee also says that the texts contain loanwords from the Hokkien language, spoken by most of Taiwan's ethnic Chinese. In these texts, we can see indigenous languages taking on outside influences. There are insights into social norms and the role of women. In many contracts, for instance, the names of the indigenous parties are often female names. Mr. Lee says that ethnic Chinese women would never have been involved with contracts like this. Things like price lists let us know something about what daily life was like. And there are also some signs of scheming. Mr. Lee says that some contracts are flawed, with the ethnic Chinese party trying to take advantage of their neighbors through unfamiliar concepts like high-interest loans. In short, these documents are a series of snapshots, fragments of what Taiwan's past was really like. How many of these manuscripts are there out there? And who decided they should all be called Sinkan manuscripts? Mr. Lee says it all started in the 1930s, when a Japanese scholar called Murakami Naojiro did a study of more than a hundred of these documents. Since documents from the village of Sinkan were a major area of his study, the name Sinkan manuscripts stuck. Murakami said that there were still dozens more manuscripts he hadn't managed to collect. In 2010, Paul Renguay Li, a famous scholar of indigenous Taiwan, did more work, bringing the number of recorded documents up to around 170. So, Mr. Li says, with this work, we have around 170 manuscripts that have been documented, studied, and translated. But others are still out there. In some cases, their owners consider them to be important family heirlooms. And though they might not understand the writing, they know that it's important. These people aren't necessarily willing to let researchers take a look at them. Why did new manuscripts stop getting made after 1818? Mr. Lee says this has to do with the takeover of written Chinese. Earlier, bilingual contracts had been common, but in the 19th century, languages like Siraya were eroding. As more people spoke Hokkien and used written Chinese, those who made new contracts likely stopped writing down terms in indigenous languages. Who holds the Sinkan manuscripts today? Mr. Lee says they're spread around the world. Many are owned by government agencies here in Taiwan, but others can be found at universities in Japan and the U.S., Why, historically speaking, are these papers important? Firstly, Mr. Lee says, they show lingering traces of Dutch influence in Taiwan. They also give us an indigenous point of view on ethnic Chinese migration into their lands. A contract or account book might not give us the direct view you could get from a diary, but these are Taiwan's first documents written in indigenous hands, and we can still hear the authors' voices today in things like their contract terms. Again, lists of prices and questionable clauses tell us about daily life and inter-ethnic relations. Lastly, Mr. Lee says, these are records of languages that have become dormant. Unlike the religious texts by Dutch missionaries, 
These were written by native speakers, and they concern everyday things, giving us a look at more natural language. They're a great source of information for linguists, of course, but they're also important to the descendants of the people who spoke these languages. Though they're not officially counted as indigenous people, groups like the Siraya have been working hard to revive their language, and these documents give first-hand information about how people used words and phrased things. In fact, despite a long hiatus, some people are writing in Siraya once again. For these people, the legacy of the Sinkan manuscripts is still present. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. If you have any comments or suggestions about our programs, you can email us at rti at rti.org.tw. We were playing around with the idea, and, and I was actually quite inspired by the natural hair movement that was taking place in Eswatini. Women there were actually coming together and and making forums and platforms for resources about how to take care of their hair and beauty. And I said, you know, the one thing that women of color actually struggle with in Taipei is that. Hello and welcome to this week's On the Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Ms. Z Delamini recently organized an event called Her Etiquette to provide a lifestyle resource forum for women of color in Taiwan. Zee Dlamini is a fashion stylist and blogger. She's also the wife of the ambassador of the Kingdom of Iswatini, formerly known as Swaziland. Zee said that the forum will let more women of color who have just arrived in Taiwan to be able to adapt to Taiwan more easily and quickly. She cited an example of some who have just arrived don't even know where to get their hair braided. Ziyu Delamini said she hopes to take the opportunity to share this cross-cultural communication experience with local friends and families. To find out more, we're joined today by Ms. Z Delamini, a fashion stylist and blogger. First of all, Z, tell us what HER Ticket is all about. So, um, HER Ticket, which is also HER Ticket, is basically health experiences and resources. Um, and we decided to do this because Hair Ticket is a beauty and wellness and the hair expo event that we're going to be holding in Taipei on December 1st. And it is held actually in honor of women of color in Taipei and to kind of create a, a forum of resources where they can come together under one roof and they can learn more about where they can find resources or things that they need for their daily necessities in Taipei, while they're in Taiwan or in Taipei. Uh, but how did you come up with this idea? Well, wow. <laughs> We've been playing uh, myself and um, my core organizer, Mandi Samdicho, who's also from South Africa. Actually, we were playing around with the idea, and we were like, well, you know, nobody's ever done this before. And I was actually quite inspired by the natural hair movement that was taking place in Eswatini, you know, and women there were actually coming together and, and making forums and platforms for resources about how to take care of their hair and beauty. And I said, you know, the one thing that women of color actually struggle with in Taipei is that. 
So that's, you know, we were talking about it, and then we said, you know what, let's stop talking about it, and let's just do it. Mm-hmm. I, I like the name. Uh, it's written in H dot E dot R, R yeah. in capital, and mm-hmm. a ticket, mm-hmm. uh, like etiquette. But it's pronounced as her ticket, which has many meanings. Her for yeah, her. Yeah, her for you know? females, yeah. Uh, yeah, her etiquette. Uh, uh, how did you come up with even this slogan? Um, we were very stuck for a name and i will not lie to you mandisa is the more creative you know part of this entire program of this like entire event and i said to her you know um this is about resources and this is about females right and i said this is about manners this is about you know how you know women of color function and live in their lifestyle so it's kind of like etiquette you know like it's a cultural thing so she was like, well, let's just call it her ticket. ticket. Because then it has a, a word play on the hair that we're, we're talking about. And then her oh. is female. Uh-huh. And then etiquette for, you know, cultural behaviors and stuff. So it has actually multiple meanings. Her, of course, for women. And her, in a way, is like Related hair. hair. Yeah. 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 Her ticket is also etiquette in a way. So it, it is a play of the it's word. It's a play with, on words, yeah. With many meanings. Yeah. So why is this event held at Minchuan University, a local university, I know, with a lot of international students? Well, um, there was no other place that we thought we could hold it. There was no other university that we knew could, um, how do I say it? Could, I mean, I'm sure there's many universities with a lot of international students, but one, we both go to Minchuan University. Mandisa and I both attend Minchuan University, and we're graduating next year. And uh, we thought, listen, let's speak to our program director, uh, Dr. Sophie Chang, and let's ask her if the school would be open to helping us, you know, host this event. Not only do they have a lot of international students and a whole lot of international student body, but I think this would be great for the school because they do take in a lot of international students, but nobody in Taipei has ever done this for international students or international, you know, for women of color in Taipei. So let's try. So we spoke to her, and she spoke to the international college, the dean and the assistant dean, and uh, to our surprise, they agreed. Mm-hmm. They agreed to give us the venue um, and to support us in any way in terms of, you know, the technicalities of the event, in terms of getting, you know, furniture and things that we might need and, you know, the sound system and this and extra hands. Um, you know, it's, it takes a lot, I think, for universities because there are organizations in a sense, right? Yes. Who is your target audience? Um, our target audience is basically women of color in Taipei from the ages of 18 to the whatever to the age of I would say sixty, mm-hmm. and we are also targeting, and then our secondary target audience are the locals as well, and it's open to them as well because we do want it to be more of a cultural, a cross cultural exchange. That's for us. That's very important. You hope with this project it can also help international students is the stay in Taiwan. How so, Z? Well, for example. A lot of the freshmen, when they come to Taiwan, is they don't know a lot of people who most probably look like them. They just see us on, on college campus or in town, and we never talk. You know, everybody's on the move, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of cultural shock when you come to Taiwan. I'm not going to lie. 
you know, especially for internet for foreign students. There's a lot of difference between our country and Taiwan. So you need to find a comfort zone, a place where you know people, you can meet people, you know where you can go get your hair braided because that's a very big deal. If you cannot deal with your hair, <laughs> you will not want you will not want to go out because your hair is always going to be a mess. Yeah. You're going to walk into salons here and they're just going to look at you and say, uh, "We don't know how to do this." You know, we don't even know how to wash your hair. So most of the time, the local salons, we have to walk them through washing our hair. So when I want their state to be more comfortable, I want them to know that, okay, if you want to get your hair braided, we have about 10 students from different countries all over the world who actually braid hair that will be there. You know, if you want to know where to go and get uh, clothing, we have People who are going to be there who are selling, you know, African-inspired clothing, who are selling student-friendly budget clothing as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of the females always complain about, oh, you know, we never can find our sizes for lingerie here. Everything is too small. Well, guess what? We found somebody who actually does sell lingerie for, you know, our sizes, our body uh, shapes. You're listening to Online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong and today I'm speaking with Miss Z Tlamini, who is a fashion stylist and blogger. Z is also the wife of the ambassador of the Kingdom of Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland. Wow, I think this is a very, very creative project. You know, um, I mean, before you actually talked about how um, women of uh, uh, color, you know, try to get their hair braided, I, we, I think, would just take it for granted that they can just go to a salon and that's it. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, there a lot of problems it's actually arise. Yes, yeah. very complicated. Um, now about yourself, uh, Z, we know that you have always been interested in fashion. How... I mean, what inspired you to become interested in fashion? Um, I mean, for me, fashion is more of a lifestyle. It's more of, you know, cross-cultural communication except through clothes. It's more being creative. It's more being expressive. It's just being about communication. And I think I've always been fascinated by the way people wear their clothes, the way people dress, the way people are when they wear certain clothes because clothes do have an effect on attitude and personality so i've always been fascinated by that did your parents especially your mother you know um have an impact on uh you learning fashion or you know when you were a child uh, did your parents or your mother played a part i would say my mother and grandmother my grandmother loved to dress very well. You could not, you know, my grandmother always used to say, no, you have to look presentable every time you leave the house. My mother was a little bit more relaxed, you know. She knew how to dress really well. She still does. Um, you know, she knew how to do it very well. And my grandmother but was the one who was quite uh, very strict about it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of an influence. I mean, for all women in my family, they... They, they all enjoyed, even the ones who are not with us today, they've always enjoyed, you know, they've always had the point that you have to look good and you have to smell good and, you know, you have to make an impression and you have to look presentable. So I've always been fascinated by, you know, they, they really spent a large amount of their money on presentation. Uh-huh. 
to impress. I think, uh, well, in yeah, the diplomatic, yeah. yeah. But in the diplomatic circle, uh, you have always impressed many on many occasions with the way you dress. But do you yourself have a large collection, and uh, do you yourself spend a lot of money on this collection? Um, you know, I would say I have I have spent a lot of money on on clothing, and um, you know. But it's all about the mood, right? It's all about what you can do. Sometimes it's not even necessary to spend a lot of money. It's just about making things work. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you know what to wear? The combination of different accessories and so on and so forth. It's you're never too sure, and there's a lot of fear. But I always say, um, you know, your life is waiting on the other side of fear. So don't be afraid to try something. It can either work or not work. And what's the worst that could happen? Nothing. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> People are probably going to be like, eh, you don't look too good today. But that's okay. You will know what works and what doesn't work. And I think it's also about learning to move past um, mass approval. Once you have moved past people's opinion about how you look, it's you're, you're much more comfortable to experiment with yourself. Mm-hmm. Now you have created many projects uh, when. Uh, you are in Taiwan. One of them, I remember last year, you had a project uh, to help school children in Switzerland. Right. Uh, what is next? Well, after this I want one? to continue with obviously the. It's called Bridge Two Six Eight with mm-hmm. the educational one. I want to see if you know we can make it a a more formal and um, often and regular kind of exchange between Taiwanese and Swazi students. Because I think it's really, really great, and it's you know it's it comes as a relief to students in Swaziland because, like I said before about the project, um, I do believe that reading, especially for children, is very fundamental. I do believe that if they have access and resources to reading, then it's easier for them to even understand certain things you know that they might not understand before, especially in the English language, and in my country. English is our um, official first language, and it's also the passing language in school throughout your educational career. So you could be a whiz at math and science, but if you're failing English, you cannot, you know, graduate. Mm-hmm. So it's my hope that you know, one day, all the children in the country, whether they're in the urban or rural areas. They will be able to speak English on the same level. They'll have the same understanding of the English language. Yeah. Now you have lived in Taiwan for a few years. What more do you think can be done to increase cultural exchanges, such as clothing between Taiwan and Iswatini? Um, I think there's a lot that can be done, especially because we do have a predominantly traditional society. We do have a lot of um, artisans in Swaziland who work with their hands, whether it's beads or it's clothing or textile. And I think there's something there that can be shared, especially when it comes to creating, you know, beaded jewelry or working with textile tie dye and stuff like that. Um, I do think that there's a big exchange that can happen there. It's just a matter of figuring it out, you know, the functionalities and how to make it work. Yes, uh, but this time the event, uh, I hope that it will work very well. Her etiquette, and we've been joined on the phone today by Z Dalamini, a fashion stylist and blogger, 
and Zidlamini is also the wife of the ambassador of the kingdom of Eswatini. And that's it for this week's online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.